guys to turn over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. This is uh, not a series that we've been in recently. This is a special day where we're taking some time out of our normal series to talk about the birth of Jesus and what it means for us. One of the great things about the stories of the Bible to me is, is that the stories help you understand the truth of the Bible in a different way than a letter does. There's different ways to understand, right? Different levels of understanding. And we need the kind of letters like the ones that we've been, like when we worked through this fall, First Peter. But we also need stories because of how relatable they are. Because of the great characters that come through them and the ways that those characters reflect things that are true about us, things we know about ourselves and the people we live around. I think the, the stories about the birth of Jesus are a great example of this. I mean, some of these characters in these stories are just fantastic and one of the things that I notice about these stories is that, is that not all of these little vignettes, if you will, in the stories about Jesus' birth and what happens immediately after are really necessary for moving the storyline along. They don't play that role. I mean, if you took them out, you could still get the basics about who Jesus is and why he came and what his coming means for those who trust him. You could still get that. We also don't need two different accounts of Jesus' birth, but we have two. We have Matthew and we have Luke. I think the reason that the, that the Bible gives us different takes on the same event and then these little bit characters, if you will, in the bigger story is, is that God is giving us an opportunity to connect ourselves with the story that we're being told. In these characters, we can see ourselves in ways that we wouldn't be able to without them. Who cares if they move the bulk of the story ahead? They help us connect with the story. They help us see ourselves in it and why it matters so much for us. Another way to put it is that these characters sometimes, including the one we're going to look at today, give us categories for our own hoping on Jesus. They show us what it looks like to welcome and enjoy him. We've talked a lot about hope over the course of the fall because that was the main theme of Peter's letter. And there's some things that a, that a letter can teach you through the clarity of language, through the simple statements of truth that come in that kind of teaching that we need desperately. But in the character we're going to consider this morning, we get a different kind of take on hope. We get, a, we get a look at what it is to hope on Jesus in real life. We get a, 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 a look at the fact that hope often, often is experienced like waiting. I want to focus on one of the deep track stories of Christmas this morning. It's a story of a man named Simeon who was at the temple when Jesus was brought there to give the purification sacrifices that were called for for the firstborn son in Israel. This is a man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We want to put ourselves in Simeon's shoes this morning, try to understand what he was waiting for and how his waiting is a model for us and our waiting for the promises God has made to us. This story that we're going to consider this morning is really short. There's not a whole lot of detail in it, but I think you're going to see yourself in this man. Before I read the story, I want to catch you up on where this falls in the bigger picture of Jesus coming. 
So the beginning of Luke 2 tells us about that famous census called by Caesar Augustus where everyone must go to the town of his family's birth to be counted. Jesus is uh, in, in utero at the time. His parents come uh, to, to Bethlehem and, and when they arrive, he's born. The shepherds are told about this great event by the angels. They flock to him in this, where he's been laid in the manger. They see him for themselves and everybody worships and glorifies God for what's been done. That's what happens in the first part of Luke chapter two. But then, after Jesus is born, the law of Moses kicks in. It's a law that required certain things of families who'd welcomed a child into their family. Eight days after his birth, Jesus had to be circumcised, a sign of his belonging in the people of the covenant God had made. A little bit after that, he had to be brought to the temple for a sacrifice the law called on for Israel to, to, to make any time a firstborn son is born. When the firstborn son is born, an offering of thanksgiving and a dedication of this child to the Lord is given at the temple at a specific time. And the mother makes a, a sacrifice of her own, a sacrifice of purification that the, that, the, that the law of Moses called for. So where we pick up this morning is with Jesus being brought as an infant by his parents to Jerusalem, to the temple for the sacrifices the law required. Now I want to read from this point and I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Luke chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 22. I'm going to read through verse 32. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, he's talking here about Joseph and Mary, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What you should know about that is that the, the law actually calls for a sacrifice of a lamb unless the family is too poor to afford a lamb, in which case they give two turtle doves and two pigeons. We're being told Jesus was born into poverty. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is God's word. You can be seated. We've talked a lot this fall about hope. What I want us to see this morning is how hoping often looks like waiting and how we can wait for comfort while tasting of the comfort that's already been given. I want to begin with some background information on Simeon. Did you notice there's a loaded phrase right in the middle of what we just read? Simeon is described as someone who is righteous and devout. And then we're told that he's righteous and devout because, essentially what it means for him to be righteous is righteousness consists in 
the fact that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a loaded phrase. And it's a loaded phrase that our summer series helps us understand a little bit more. I mentioned last week, one of the things we like to do at this time of year and also with Easter is take themes that we've, we've covered already in our normal preaching of God's word and, and, and apply those themes to the stories that we celebrate at these special times of year. I don't know how many of you remember back in the summer. Can you remember that far back? I know there's a lot of water under the bridge since then. But back in the summertime, we talked about lament. It's a very important kind of material that the Bible has a lot of. It's a a kind of material that's sad. That's an honest complaint to God over things in your life that, that are hard. That you would have never chosen for yourself. That you have a difficult time understanding things that you wish were different or that seem inconsistent even with the promises of goodness that God has made to you. Lament is what you use to to, to pray to God in light of the hard things in your life and in light of the good promises he's made. Back in the summer, we talked about the fact that this this kind of material is precious because it helps put words to our experience. And I think it helps us understand what Simeon was longing for. This consolation, this comfort he was longing for is language that comes straight out of the book of Lamentations. We spent five weeks this summer talking about this book. I want to refer you to all the sermons that are up on the website if, if you're interested in learning more, if you weren't here for those sermons. This book is a precious work of art, a stunning work of genius that's almost unmatched in, in world literature. People say that about it, not just me. It's incredible. It's written from the rubble of the holy city, from a person who stood and saw as Jerusalem, the prized possession of Israel, the centerpiece for its hopes in the world, was reduced to to rubble, to, to rocks scattered about and to smoldering fires, destroyed completely by the will of God, and by the swords and the spears and the torches of the armies of Babylon. The first line of the first poem in that beautiful collection says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. The poet's trying to put words to to something that happens. It always comes with traumatic loss. There's always a sense of of disorientation, of confusion, of a difficulty to understand the now in light of what was then. The first word and a word that's repeated often and that's used as the title of the book is the word how. Think how, question mark, exclamation point. How could this be? The whole book is like this. Someone described it as a love song. That all laments are love songs to what you had and loved, to what you longed for and sought but have no more. Laments are always love songs. The book is a hymn to, to that loss and to the pain that comes from, from what, ha- what was, from, from knowing what was and comparing it to what is. Now, the book is is full of language like that about this reversal 
And it just cries out for witness, for somebody to see what happened, confirm how terrible it is. And underneath it all, right alongside with this repetition of how, 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 especially in the first poem, are reference after reference to a lack of comfort. There's no one to comfort. What Israel wants most, some sort of balm to ease this pain, is precisely what Israel can't get anywhere. Here's from later in the poem. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. There's no one to comfort Israel because no one can do anything about what's happened. The only way they could get any comfort from the people, from the resources they had around them was if somebody could cheapen the significance of what they lost, the preciousness of what they had. Someone who could could point out some sort of silver lining to them, some sort of at least you still have your health or some cheap form of comfort like that. But given what they Given what they lost, there, there is no comfort to be had in any at least. There is no silver lining that changes the reality. What they lost was too precious for anyone to comfort them. And Lamentations is realistic about that. About the longing for comfort and the impossibility of getting it. There was no one who could give them any comfort given what they lost but the same God who brought this judgment on them to begin with. Only a God who could intervene, only a God who could bring redemption can offer comfort given the losses that they had suffered. And that's what Israel longed for, for some kind of intervening comfort for hundreds of years. Those who lived through the city's destruction, who, who had the vivid memories that the guy who wrote Lamentations would have had, those who had that in their, in, their, in their minds, burned in, seared in, those whose loved ones starved in the siege or died by the sword in the battle, they lived out their years and they died with their pain. But every generation after them, every generation of Israel since them, even those who never saw the city for themselves, they live with the scars of that former glory. They ached for the lost treasure they never got to enjoy for themselves, for what they had heard about and read about, what they'd been taught about from the days of David. They identified with Israel. Her pain was their pain. And even though some of them came home back to the actual geographical location of Jerusalem, even though some of them got to come home from their exile, what they came home to was just a shell of what they had before. And it wasn't even really theirs, even as it was. Yeah, they, they had new walls. Nehemiah helped them with those. But those walls were manned by foreign soldiers. Those walls imprisoned them as much as they protected them. They had a new temple, sort of. But it was such a shell of the former temple that those who saw it cried over it when it was built. They were still longing for someone to comfort them in their grief, for some sort of relief from the pain of what they'd lost. And one of the incredible things about Lamentations, one of the things we talked about a lot when we were actually studying it week by week, what makes it timeless for us is the ability of this poem and others like it to put words to the feelings that the grieving have known but not been able to describe for themselves. 
Lamentations gives us words for the disorientation we feel when we grieve. That's why it's there. It's there as the witness that Israel was longing for. Someone to say, yes, I see it. It hurts. It's a witness you need to your own experience of loss and some words you can use to describe your longing to be comforted. I wonder, is that what you're longing for this morning? If you are longing for comfort this morning, then I know this time of year can be especially hard to deal with. Right? There's a lot of sadness and despair at this time of year. And, and the reasons are hard to find. I mean, the generic cultural Christmas celebration, well, it's a ton of fun. I mean, our family enjoys at least our fair share of generic cultural Christmas. If you want a hand-drawn map of the best Christmas lights and blow-ups within a 10-mile radius of this spot, we can give that to you. Or better yet, just join us tonight because we'll probably be hitting them up again. And, and we have a lot of fun with it, and I encourage that. But for all the fun that a generic cultural Christmas can offer to your family, it offers precious little comfort. Yes, it offers fun. Absolutely no, not. It can't comfort you. No amount of fun, no amount of nostalgia can, can affect grief over loss that many feel even more acutely this time of year than any other time. One of our favorite cultural Christmas things to, to do is watch The Grinch. We love it. Watch it multiple times every year. And to an extent, we love the critique that The Grinch offers of consumerism, right? Like the Grinch comes in, he steals all their stuff. They still love Christmas anyway. A little implausible, but still a good message that they would be just as happy without their stuff as they would with their stuff. It's a critique of consumerism that we wholeheartedly affirm. But you know where the comfort comes from in the loss of their stuff Christmas Day is here at last so long as we have hands to clasp. Christmas time will always be just so long as we have we. But what if what if what you've lost are those hands? What if the lack of people in your life that you can depend on is precisely the problem? What if your Christmas celebrations are scarred by the empty seats at the table? or broken relationships, or crippling loneliness. If you're hurting, and if people are part of the reason, there's going to be precious little comfort, even from the best of our cultural celebrations. And if you're hurting, and if you're longing for comfort, and if you've found comfort hard to come by, then Simeon is somebody you can relate to. talked about Simeon's background his longing for comfort what I want to show you now is that he was waiting for comfort I want to show you what his hope looked like so you can share it we talked about back in the series on lamentations back in the summer we we talked about the fact that the book ends without really any comfort God doesn't speak in that book it's intentional on the part of the author and on the God who inspired it to give you an unanswered prayer you can connect with even if you haven't seen a happy ending yet. It's there for you, no matter where you are. That lack of resolution is part of the, part of the unique role that this book plays in the bigger picture of the Bible. But what we also noted at the end of that series is that there's another book written from the same context, written imagining Israel after everything had been destroyed, speaking to Israel in the destruction of her hopes. 
with a message of comfort. We spent a lot of time in the final sermon on the Lamentation series connecting promises that God makes in the prophet Isaiah to cries for comfort that come out of Lamentations. It's, it's remarkable how closely they correspond with one, uh, with one another. It's almost as if Isaiah 40 to 55 is meant as a, as a response to Lamentations. I'll refer you again to that sermon for more details. But I want to just quickly point you now to the message that Stephanie read earlier in our, in our, our service this morning from Isaiah chapter 40. So think about uh, Lamentations, unresolved, cries for comfort. There's no one to comfort her. There is no happy ending to that book. But here's a word from God to the same Israel in the same context, answering her cry for comfort. Isaiah chapter 40, verse one, listen to this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. It's an offer of precisely the comfort they were looking for. That Israel's sin wouldn't be the end of this story. That God could still redefine who they are by his love. And through his savior bring them a hope. And not just to them, but through Israel, a hope to all nations and all peoples everywhere who are broken without help, hope for a comforter elsewhere. That's what Isaiah promises. It's the the hope of the gospel, friends. That in our sin and in our sorrow, something new has broken. That God himself has come to us, even though we had rejected him. That he's come in the person of his son who lived the life we were made to live but failed to live. Who lived perfectly and who chose to die even though he didn't have to. So that we could live even though we don't deserve to. That exchange, that reversal is what brings us hope in the midst of our reversals here on earth. When we lose what we loved and can't get it back. The fact that the son of God lost his life though he didn't deserve to. And can give us life though we don't deserve it is what gives us hope. That's what Isaiah promises. That's what Israel was longing for. And Simeon would have known of this promise. He also would have known all too well that this promise had not yet come to pass. Centuries have gone by. Generation after generation was born and lived in the land at the mercy of these foreign powers. They had repeated these promises of comfort to themselves and their children over and over lifespan after lifespan handing them on from one mother and father to their children and then from those children to their own children and so on living and dying without seeing what they long to see that's how the promise of comfort came to Simeon and now Simeon has lived for decades waiting now I've called this section waiting where the first section was called longing because I want you to know there's a big difference. Sometimes I mean, you might think of waiting as just one kind of longing or that longing and waiting have a lot of overlap to them, but they, they don't. So Simeon, yes, was longing for comfort, but in his longing, he's praised here for waiting. Waiting is an active posture. Waiting takes a conscious decision. And it's a loaded phrase throughout the Old Testament. Simeon described here as someone who's waiting for the consolation of Israel. It should sound familiar if you know much about the Old Testament. It should sound familiar even even if you're just paying attention during what we just sang and read from before the sermon. We sang a song from, uh, from Psalm 130. 
Psalm 130 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. It's a fo- waiting is a focused and intentional and specific kind of longing. It's a longing for someone or for something that's based on a specific word of promise. It's a way of hoping. Take the Isaiah 40 promise that I read a minute ago. Speak comfort to my people. Comfort is coming. Your warfare is ended. Prepare the way of the Lord. We read earlier. But if you fast forward to the end of chapter 40, of Isaiah chapter 40, past beautiful, unforgettable descriptions of God and his power and his goodness and his ability to intervene and to save, past those descriptions of God, the poem ends with a description of the one who will receive from God what he's promised. It's a person who's described as one who waits. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's those who wait for the Lord who will see him act. See, friends, longing could lead you to to settling. There's a way to long for something and not wait. Your longing could drive you to something, some sort of lesser hope that you think just in a moment of despair is worth a try. You know, sometimes we've been, made the mistake of going to a movie before dinner on a dinner and movie date, hungry. And we walk in and that smell hits us. Walk in. I mean, they're pumping that smell out into the parking lot, right? The, the butter popcorn smell, that fabricated, chemically induced butter taste. It's pumped out into the parking lot. We, it, that smell hits us. And if we're hungry, more times than I'd like to admit, no matter how many times we swear we'll never do it again, we're suckers for that big all-you-can-eat bowl. That, and then we're, I'm cheap enough to make sure I get the refill because I want my money's worth. And so we just chow down on that popcorn from the previews on, two buckets full, and don't eat dinner. That's happened on multiple occasions because we've so gorged ourselves on this popcorn that seems so good in the moment that we don't have anything left for what we were really longing for. Longing has led us to lesser hopes when waiting would have been better. And Simeon here has chosen waiting. It's not a passive thing, friends. He's not kicked his feet up. He's not reclined back in his chair. He's not settled in. It's an active decision that you can only imagine took everyday discipline. A decision that it would be better to wait for the comfort that the Lord has promised than to settle for anything less than to waste his time on empty hopes that can't stand up to what he'd lost. Did you notice that in this verse, he's described as someone who is righteous and devout. And then he's described as someone who's waiting for the consolation of Israel. His righteousness was in his waiting. And Simeon gives us a prototype of what God's people's posture should be toward God while we live in the gap between what he's promised us and what we're experiencing now. For every single one of us, there is a gap. There's what we experience now and there's what he's promised us. And for all the goodness we have experienced from his hand, we have not yet experienced everything. He's promised to wipe away every tear and we're still crying. He's promised that death has been defeated. 
and we're still dying. He's promised that our sin will yield to the image of Jesus. He will bring out in us and still every day we sin. There's a gap between what he's promised and what we've experienced. And Simeon knew that gap. Think of how many years he had to wait. We don't like waiting, do we? I mean, in general, even in our, in our culture, it's, hard, it's getting harder to wait partly because we don't have to wait for much of anything. I mean, at least for, for, for a lot of things. I mean, one of the, one of the classic forms of waiting that, that we had to live with in my younger years was waiting from one week to another for a show you loved. Binge watching wasn't a thing. You know, you watched it on Sunday night, you had to wait till the next Sunday night or whatever to, to know what was gonna happen. The resolution of that cliffhanger. But in the Netflix era, it's all right there. If you want to, you could stay up all night and just watch one after another after another until it's over. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for scores or news articles. I remember as a kid waiting for the paper to be delivered to my house in the afternoon so I could find out if the Braves won yesterday, like almost 24 hours ago. That's how I found out if they won or not. You don't have to wait for that anymore. We don't have to wait for harvest if we want to eat. We don't have to wait for good weather if we want to travel, even if we want to travel across the sea. And we're not used to waiting, and we prefer not to wait. I do. Besides this sort of natural aversion to waiting, we have a deeper spiritual and theological aversion to waiting too. I think we have an aversion to a God who would make his people wait. We think to ourselves, "That, that can't be good for me. It can't be good that I would wait. If he were good, he wouldn't ask that of me, would he? That means if I don't experience his presence right now, he must not be there. If I'm still grieving, it must be because he can't turn my sorrow into gladness after all. If I'm still struggling with sin week after week, day after day, it must be because he actually doesn't have the power or the will to set me free. Because waiting for him to do what he said, that's not something a good God would ask of me, is it? In other words, friends, sometimes we can turn a delay in the promises of God coming to fulfillment into a case against him. Where the Bible, consistently, through its stories, through its law books, through its letters, through the whole thing, treats waiting as a powerful tool of God's purpose in our lives. And I, I don't want to be confused here for saying that whatever unique circumstances you're living with don't come into play. There's no question I can't see or no one can see fully into what God's doing through what he's brought into your life. No one should pretend to know that. But don't let the uniqueness of what you're facing keep you from recognizing this common pattern found throughout the Bible, a promise of what is going on in your waiting. At the very least, at a baseline level, what God is doing in your waiting is teaching you to trust him more than you trust yourself or anything else. Waiting in the Bible, waiting like Simeon did, is how we learn that we are not God and have to trust everything to him. Now I realize, obviously, that's easier said than done. Just because it's been part of God's people's experience ever since the garden doesn't, just because we should expect it and not resent it doesn't mean that we like it. 
And I think it does raise for us important questions. It makes sense to ask, especially when the waiting is hard, why it's worth waiting. I don't, I don't think that question is off base. I think it's a kind of, the kind of question that the Psalms are, are full of. Why should I trust that this solution will deliver? That what God has promised to do through Jesus will actually come to pass for me in my life? While we have to wait for our consolation, just like Israel did, friends, we can take some comfort from Simeon's story. We get to see something he didn't see till his last days. And it doesn't end the waiting, but it gives us a powerful tool for waiting in faith. We need to see what Simeon saw that day at the temple. The promises that Simeon was living for, the the consolation he was waiting for, it was a sweeping and dramatic and even violent event hinged on God intervening in history to set right everything that had been been broken, to establish his king once and for all, and to rid his people from the yoke of their oppressor. It was nothing less than the establishment of a new city. That's what Simeon was longing for, and it would make more sense as he's longing for it. For him to find comfort, longing for that goal, What would make more sense to me is if he were up on the walls of Jerusalem looking out over the the horizon and he sees it. Over one of the distant hills, he sees what looks like little sticks rising up in the sky. He notices then that they're, they're actually spears. They're actually banners. They're flags flapping in the wind. And at the front of this army that emerges rides a brave and powerful king a king that no one can stand against, who's come to do exactly what he was hoping for, riding a white horse out in front, ready for battle. That isn't what Simeon sees at all. We're told in the text that this man, waiting for the consolation of of Israel, had the Holy Spirit on him. He had a different kind of seeing that the Spirit had made possible for him. Back when David was chosen as king, we were told that the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And here, by the power of God's spirit, spirit, Simeon sees what God sees. Through the chaos of what that temple would have been like at that time, basically an ancient bazaar, people coming and going, all sorts of crazy sounds, animals snorting and baying and clucking and doing whatever it was that they do, people moving, dodging one another, going about their business. Through all that chaos, Simeon's eyes land on one poor family, too poor even to buy a lamb for the sacrifice the law required of them. He sees them and he sees their child. They carried no sign to mark him as the one who, would, who was to come. The Spirit opened his eyes. And seeing this tiny baby, who only got there because his mama carried him there, Simeon's heart knows a peace he's never felt before. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. The redemption Simeon was starving for, the longing he had to see his people reestablished, 
to see them restored to the glory of the Lord they had known before, shining among them to all people. All things broken and sorrowful set right again. All that he was hoping for. In the face of this little baby, he sees it all. And he's glad. It's been a long, long winter. But finally, it's Christmas. I like to imagine this moment like the Lion King, you know? Simeon grabs the baby and he holds him up. What was Mary thinking? This random dude comes up to her and snatches her baby and holds him up and starts talking about him. It's just crazy to imagine it. But Simeon doesn't care because he knows what this means and he's lived for it and now he sees it. He knows what the Bible teaches and the Spirit has given him eyes to see. God loves to use the weak things to shame the strong. He loves to, he loves to confound the expectations of the wise. He loves to use what seems foolish to expose what seems best. He takes the things that are not and overcomes the things that are. Simeon knows that. And he doesn't see all the promises fulfilled, not yet. But he's ready to die in peace because for him, it's as good as done. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Do you see what he's saying? He sees that all of God's promises are yes and amen in the arrival of this baby. In this tiny little baby, in this baby's face, he sees as if in microcosm, the whole world that's been promised them boiled down to this flesh and blood. And even though he can't yet see it all in his own experience, he knows because this baby has come, it's as good as done. And that's how Simeon's story, seeing what Simeon saw, can give us a taste of the comfort we long for while we wait to see it in full. Friends, there is no no reason to cheapen God's promises to us in order to make him look better in light of our experiences now. We are waiting. But we wait in hope when we pay attention to the fact that God has come to us, that the word has put on flesh and dwelt among us, that he is doing what he said he would do and nothing can stop him. Yes, we wait. That's true. But because of Christmas. Our waiting is a little bit like a sunrise. You know, when the, I, don't, I don't get up early enough to watch the sunrise usually. I have before. And in those handful of times when I've seen one, that first shaft of light that beams up in the sky before sunrise, you know what I'm talking about? You see that first beam? In microcosm, the rising of the sun is represented there. You don't see it all yet. It's still dark. You can't see very well. It's still chilly maybe. But you know what that shaft means. The skies are clear. The sun is rising. And you will feel its warmth and see by its light soon enough. Friends, that's how the coming of Jesus, the hope of Christmas offers us true comfort for our waiting. It's only a matter of time. 
The sun is already on its way up. The light is already shining. The darkness cannot overpower it. So take heart and keep waiting. Our Father, we know that we don't have the discipline, the hope that we would need to wait. We know waiting is not something we enjoy and that many things make it harder. And so we ask for you to help us. Right now we ask that you would give us your strength, the same Spirit's power that opened Simeon's eyes would open ours so that we see the beauty of what you've promised us and have already begun to do more clearly than we see the problems that dominate our view otherwise. We want to interact with our problems. We want to grieve over our losses with hope that comes from knowing Christ is for us. So we pray that you would give us that faith. That you would help us to help one another hold on to it. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you will come quickly to turn our faith to sight. We pray in his name. Amen.